Let me read the theme verse and then pray and then we'll go forward. Thank you, Chris, by the way. Let us pray. Let me read it and pray. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's Acts 2.42. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we have these means whereby you're going to work in our lives. You're going to sanctify us and make us one with you and give us the joy of fellowship with one another. We believe your promises. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we'll go forward from there. Remember this one here. If you weren't here earlier, remember, I'm quoting MacArthur. Doctrine is not the enemy of devotion, like some people think. Doctrine is a good thing. And being devoted to the apostles' doctrine is to be devoted to God, and the Lord will bless us. And then we did this one about true piety. The widow has children or grandchildren. Let them first learn to practice piety regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Piety here is our word. Eusebio, the noun form is Eusebia, and it's usually translated godliness in the New Testament. And the reason for translating it godliness, which is a good translation, is that in the Greek world, it often was used in, in a, not necessarily a Christian way, as we would understand it. Paul, for example, saw that the Athenian philosophers were religious, and he, using the word, root of this word. But it doesn't mean it's bad. It can take on the meaning of the context, and in a Christian setting, it, piety is a good thing if it's understood as coming from Christ and the grace of God that comes to us through the gospel. Now, here's the one that shows us that there's a distinction and there's a danger about false religion, a form of religion that denies the power. Here it says, holding to a form of godliness, though they have denied its power, 2 Timothy 3, 5, Avoid such men as these. Avoid, by the way, is in the imperative in the Greek, so we're commanded to avoid false religion. Guess what I found in my door this morning? I must have been in the shower. JWs had been by. Just what I want to do, debate them for an hour or two so I'm late for church when I'm the teacher. But I got their little brochure threw it in the trash. But there are people that have a form of religion that will get so carried away with it, they're willing to go door to door to door to door looking for proselytes. And once they get people hooked into their system, those people never get free from it. They will serve the Watchtower Society the rest of their lives and will never ever be given the assurance of salvation. They're told that they can't expect to go to heaven. They usually ask Christians, where does the Bible say you're going to heaven? The answer is in John chapter 14, where Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. We believe Jesus ascended into heaven. We know that from other verses. So Jesus is promising that he'll come and bring us to himself and that we'll go to be with him in heaven. There's your answer. They have a question that they know will stump most Christians. Now, here we have the word form, morphosis in the Greek. The word for form here, where we get, we shorten it, we use the term morph, morph into something or metamorphosis. Here, the false teachers have a form 
of religion or Eusebia that sounds good and looks good, but it doesn't have power. It's powerless. So you have visible expressions, religious duties, but no power to actually change our lives. So I'm going to do some references here. I didn't pass these out ahead of time, but I'll let Brian be the mic man. Dan, do you want to read one? 1 Timothy 6, 5 and 6. And Nancy, if you could do Titus 1, 16. And then Brian, after those people, could you do 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 4? And then we'll try to find out what Paul's talking about here. They have an outward appearance, morphosis, Okay, so what is this form and what's the real thing? Obviously, my dear brothers and sisters, you and I are looking for the real thing. We want godliness, we want true piety, and we want the real thing. And we want to avoid, because we want to obey God, and said avoid those who have this false form of it. Okay, Dan, you were first, 1 Timothy 6, 5, and 6. And constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So how is godliness a means of gain in one sense, but not in another? Would you think this applies to the health and wealth gospel? You give your money away and you get great gain? They suppose that, but the true gain is that we might be pleasing to the Lord through the gospel, not that we become wealthy through the teachings of the false teachers. So there's a play on words with the term gain. What sort of gain is it that we need? We need to be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to read a quote from Gordon Fee. I mentioned the form is morphosis. Fee says this. They liked the invisible expressions, the ascetic practices, endless discussions of religious trivia, thinking themselves to be obviously righteous because they were obviously religious. But they thereby denied the essential power of the Christian Eusebia. There's our word for godliness or, or piety since they engaged in so many of the religious attitudes and practices that characterized the pagan world. So one thing now we know for sure is that true piety comes through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and is defined by him and his apostles. And it's it's true gain in the eternal sense and not simply a means of getting money by ripping off other Christians, which has been tried and used a lot in the last 30 years, especially since TV became so prominent. Okay, Nancy, if you could read for us Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Okay, so here would be false teachers who live a wicked life but claim to know God. It says they're worthless. They're of no value for any good deed. The power of, this is me now reading from my notes, the power of God is the power of the Holy Spirit who comes to us through the word. Remember that? We're studying Acts 2.42, devoted to the apostles' doctrine. And I quoted Luther many times here to show that he really did teach this. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. That's the means by which the Holy Spirit comes and gives to us and works in us true godliness that's evident to others and pleasing to God. And it's not a false idea. Now, Brian, could you read 1 Corinthians 2.4? This is very 
important. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Okay. So the, in 1 Corinthians, it's very clear. And I have a passage here. Uh, Steve, can you look up a verse? 1 Corinthians 1.18. In 1 Corinthians, the power of God is most prominently displayed through the cross and through the preaching of the cross. So through the cross, God saves sinners and makes us right with God and empowers us to live godly lives. So the power of God is centered on the cross. So if you have a form morphosis of Eusebia, piety, but deny his power, that would be a false religion to be avoided. But the true power of God, it comes through Christ and his cross. Okay, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Okay, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. So the word of the cross is the power of God. And so the power that's denied by the false teachers is the power of Christ through the cross to redeem us, deliver us, sanctify us, and empower us to live in a manner pleasing to the Lord. I want to quote another scholar, Dr. Lee, says this. The summary contains two elements. First, the heretics maintained a form of godliness, morphosis, they affected its outward appearance but lacked its essence. They enjoyed arguing about religious trivia, practiced asceticism, that would be severe treatment of the body, assuming that, by being, that being religious proved that they were also righteous. Paul's vigorous denunciation of such hypocrisy provides a shocking warning for modern purveyors of religion who deny God's moral claims, but use religious jargon. Wow, do we read about some horrendous examples of this that get into the pages of the paper? We've had many lately. There's this guy that had a camp who was having illicit relationships with teenage girls in the name of God. We've had how many... It's pious preachers absconding with money, setting up pyramid schemes, having a form of religion, but not his power. Back to Dr. Lee. Second, Paul indicated that they were denying the essence of Christianity. The perfect tense of denying, literally having denied, suggests that they have denied the truth of Christianity and continue to do so. Such denial was a way of life for them. I remember in the 80s, I was watching a debate between Walter Martin and uh, a guy by the name of Bishop Spung. Okay, this was within a week of when Dr. Martin died and went to be with the Lord. Bishop Spung was claiming that homosexuality was a valid lifestyle for a Christian. And Reverend Martin, or Dr. Walter Martin, was refuting him using scripture. And it was a very interesting debate about it. It was just total opposite directions. And Spung is religious, church spires, bricks and mortars, crosses, the whole thing. Talk about deny, having a form of religion but denying the power thereof. That was him. Now, that was in the 80s, and it was shocking to a lot of people. You know what's really sad today? People aren't shocked anymore. They just accept this is the way it is. It's nothing to be alarmed about. You Christians are a bunch of haters. Have you heard that? You don't have to hate anybody to be disagreeing with their religious ideas. It says, Dr. Lee goes on, it says, the present tense of the Greek indicates continuous action Timothy was to apply rigorously. 
he had to continue to keep away from people like this. The command did not demand a termination of all personal relations. Paul had called for kindness to all in 224, but it does suggest that he had to practice separation in spirit from the actions and attitudes of the heiress. So those who are saying, well, you're haters, well, no, we're obeying the Lord Jesus and his apostles. Command of the Bible is to avoid. In the Greek, it's an imperative. So that's why we have our marching orders and we're not disquieted by these false religious claims that are all around us. But I will say this, what should this do for us if not drive us to the gospel and drive us to the cross whereby the power of God is expressed, as we saw read in 1 Corinthians 1.18 and 1 Corinthians 2.4. The power of God is the power to forgive lost sinners and to empower us to live a life pleasing to God. So there is the distinction between true and false piety. Now, I want to make another distinction. and Think about this carefully, because sometimes this really confuses people, okay? So now we know there is a true godliness or piety, and that there's a false God, form of godliness or piety. Now we want to see about a system of belief that may be based on these things. Did you know that demons have doctrines? Now, just you don't have to have a PhD in theology to answer this question, but let me ask an obvious one. Do you think the doctrines of demons would probably be a bad idea? Yeah, it's really bad. So we don't want to listen to the doctrines of demons. But the doctrines of the demons are telling us to live what outwardly looks like a more pious life. Now, you might think, well, this seems strange. No, not if you study church history. Look at the Desert Fathers, the mystics. Look at the monastic movement. Look at Rome. Look at emergent. And we probably won't get this far, but I want to have us look at Rick Warren's program of taking religious oaths. This is not foreign. This is what's going on today. You want to bring the mic over to Rich. And then I want to actually read the passage. You're looking at it, but people may listen on the Internet. My brother has gotten into something, and I was wondering if this would fall underneath the category of this is that he's gotten into what is called the, the Pentateuch or the, the Old Testament law. And he says that he's saved by the blood of Yeshua, but he, he lives by the law in the if Old I Testament. If he's a Torah observant? Right, he's Torah observant. And he says that if I should blow one of the laws, then the blood of Christ covers me or the blood of Yeshua covers me. But he, he does what he can to live by the law. So Would he's that... going to take the blood atonement of Christ and he add it to Torah yeah, and then that's... follow Torah. Pretty much it. Would that well, be the, the book of Galatians that we just finished studying calls that how to put yourself under a curse. The curse, I told him that. I said, you, you just put yourself and your family under the curse exactly. of following that whole law. If you don't follow the whole law, you, you're, you're yeah. damned. You know, you, Cursed is everyone who doesn't observe everything. But is that the doctrine of demons? Would that follow under this category? Of course. The doctors of demons are always going to lead you to some form of religion that may be rigorous, but it's not revealed by God under the new covenant. Well, let me read the passage. We're already explaining. I haven't even read it. All right, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But the Spirit explicitly says, now Paul is prophesying to us by the Holy Spirit, and he's the apostle. He can do that. The Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, okay, or depart from the faith. What will they do? Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences with a branding iron, so they have cauterized consciences. Men who forbid marriage 
and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. Rich, in answer to a question right there, abstaining from foods would be the food laws. Jesus, in Mark 7, declared all food clean. Right? Peter saw the division. This was a settled issue under the new covenant. We don't have food laws, but Torah does. Falling away from the faith doesn't look like some people think it might look like. In this case, it has a religious veneer. Sometimes it is morally reprehensible. Other times it looks pious and religious. Let me answer my question or explain my statement. Piety is not pietism. Piety, Eusebia, means godliness, which means being in a state of being right with God and living in a way to please him. That's good. And we're in favor of it. Pietism is a system of belief that promises some sort of higher order Christian experience claiming that being an ordinary Christian is an unacceptable outcome. I don't know if any of you looked it up. Remember last week I was recommending an audio by John MacArthur? An ordinary church. Anybody listen to that? It's, I did. I thought it was fantastic. It was based on Acts two forty two. An ordinary Christian is pious. An ordinary Christian does have godliness. An ordinary Christian is committed to the moral law of God. But these religious purveyors have a system of belief it could be extreme as i said today i got a flyer from the jehovah witnesses that must have come to the door when i was in the shower they have a very rigorous system of religion the watchtower society tells you everything they claim to be christian they're willing to go door to door to purvey their false Belief. They're trying to convince Christians that they're not going to go to heaven. And so they have a pious system, but it's not pleasing to God. False piety comes from lawgivers who likely have an over-realized eschatology. What they teach is called departing from the faith, which amounts to apostasy. This is me saying this. Demons are the source of the apostates' doctrines. False teachers were hypocritical. They had strong ascetic demands, but they themselves lived however they wanted. Let me give an example that happened in my lifetime to someone who's dear to me, my, my brother Wayne, who was in the particular church. There was a man in Minneapolis who had a pretty big church. In fact, they had a, not only a church, but an industry, a missions project. They had everything. And he was teaching perfectionism. He got that from Watchman Nee and from John Wesley and so on and so forth. So he was a perfectionist, claimed that you can achieve sinless perfection now, had a huge church based on that. Well, he did have elders, and the elders called for an audit of the books one year. And when they got into the audit, they found out this guy had misappropriated $93,000. Now, that's small change compared to some of these guys. But that was a lot of money in 1980 or whatever it was, right around 80, 81, 82. And here's what's worse. They confronted him and said, you have misappropriated and used for your own purposes $93,000 of the church's money. We want you to give account for this to repent and to give the money back. He said, oh... My sons, you don't understand. And he took this pious, pompous attitude, believing that whatever he did was okay because he was him. And he wouldn't repent and he wouldn't even admit it was wrong. My brother Wayne was a member of that church. And they said, you can't do this. At least admit that embezzling $93,000 is sin. No, because see, he was sinless by definition. So it couldn't have been sin. The whole thing went to the four winds. Wayne left there and 
came over to our fellowship. And we, God bless Wayne. And so I, I also knew some of their elders who all left. And the thing collapsed and turned into nothing. Listen, claiming to be sinlessly perfect doesn't elevate you in one bit. As a matter of fact, it makes it worse because you're not on your guard. You're not realizing, but by the grace of God, there go I. But they're really good at making all of the people under them hop, skip, and jump. And that's what this guy did. Now, it says in Matthew 23, 4. Now, I keep forgetting to give out verses. Uh, <laughs> who wants to read Matthew 23, 4? Where's the mic? Well, it's, it's close to just about every, everybody. Down that way. Okay, Fredrickson's. Go on the other side of Steve. Oh, you're going way down there. Right in front of you. Greg and Lohan. Matthew 23, 4. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as finger. Yep, they're saying, you get under our thumb and you do everything we said. And I'm going to point it out, but you're not even doing it yourself. Well, we're the leaders. We don't have to. And that has repeated itself for 2,000 years of church history, and it repeats itself to this very day. Again and again and again. That's why, my dear friends, Martin Luther, in order to forestall that sort of abuse, searched in the books of Peter, first and second, and found that we are a kingdom of priests. And he searched and saw the authority of Scripture and taught as a key Reformation doctrine the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. And so if if this happens, you can go right to God and say, Reverend, stealing $93,000 from the offerings of these precious saints is a sin against God. I don't care who you claim you are, which is, by the way, what they did. God bless them. Not everybody does. Sometimes they knuckle under and say, well, maybe God told him to do this. So this is demonic. Let me quote uh, Dr. Towner. The, The allegation of hypocrisy amounts then to the charge of deception. They weren't who they said they were, and their teaching wasn't what they claimed it to be. The use of the term in ancient polemics and in the New Testament suggests that intentional rather than accidental deception is implied. What is piety? It's being humble toward God, submitting to the authority of Scripture, understanding the power of the cross, the solas of the Reformation, Christ alone, faith alone, and so forth, and to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. What's pietism? It's a system of religion that claims to produce higher-order Christians. Its biggest and most prominent expression was in Roman Catholic monasticism. And if you want to read some interesting reading, I quote part of it in my book, but Luther against religious vows. Very interesting. He, he refused the whole monastic movement. And that's why, Dan, thank you for that audio, being ordinary in a godly way is an extraordinary thing. If we can just be a doorkeeper in the house of God in the eternal kingdom is far better than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. So the conscience can be cauterized. And it sounds pious, forbidding marriage. That's a doctrine of demons. Does it, is it going to bear good fruits? Absolutely not. Look at all of the scandals in the front page of the Star and Trib, mind you, the left-wing newspaper. On the front page, it talks about scandals of Rome that happen 
by those who deny marriage. John MacArthur has some great tapes on that if you ever want to listen to it. Making food laws, so on and so forth. Let's go on here. <clears throat> yes. Hold on. Not without the mic. I don't. Did I miss something here? Or back to the losing your, well, falling away from the faith. Uh, if you're a Christian and you're saved, even we cannot lose our faith. Okay, the question is whether Christians can apostatize. You you did say that that's not what it meant. Well, God will keep true Christians from apostatizing. But there have been and will be people who claim to be Christian leaders or other kind of Christians who claim to be pious, who by their deeds deny the Lord and they apostatize in that way, proving they went out from us because they were not really of us. So they were never really saved in the first place. Yeah, exactly. But you don't know that until it happens. Bill. Well, I, I've struggled with that one quite a bit because when I read that verse, I, I questioned, how can I fall away from something I never had to begin with? It says fall away from the faith. And if I, if I was in the faith, then I couldn't lose my faith. But it says fall away from it. So I always struggle with that. Well, I've always said there's two answers to that. That's a very good question. I'm not dismissing your question whatsoever. Two things. Number one, there are people who appear to be of us. They may even be self-deceived who literally do fall away. Number two, for the truly elect, this warning will scare them so much they don't fall away. It's the old elevator shaft illustration that Eric and I use. Don't step here, you will die. The Christian reads that, and it scares them. Is that, do you think that's the same idea as when the Scripture talks about um, denying Christ uh, when, you, when you deny him? Or not to deny yeah, him? Well, let me give you an example. That. Good question. Let me exa- give you examples that will show both both aspects. And I'm going to talk about Judas, the apostate, and Peter. They were both disciples. They were both recipients of the same teaching, right? They sat under Jesus' feet for three years. They both were trained in the teachings of Christ and discipleship. Judas was an apostate who went out from them in John 13 and elsewhere. Peter denied the Lord, but was restored and truly repented. There's the difference. We may not know on the front end what that is until we see the outcome later. There may be a Judas and a Peter, and we'll find out as history unfolds who's what. Peter will always come back. Judas will be gone and stay that way. Rich. Well, just, oh, well, hold on. It's just okay, interesting yeah. that the other apostles at that point, they, they, when Jesus says, one of you will deceive me, they did not look to Judas at first. They, were, they couldn't believe it. They well, thought, is it me? Yeah, yeah, I know. They couldn't believe it was Judas. They thought he was one of them. They had no idea it was him. Right. So I think we can understand these things. Now let's go to the next slide. Um, I think the scripture taught, what are we studying, Acts 242, devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine. The scriptures taught authoritatively, clearly, providing the tools for the saints that they can study for themselves and submitting to the authority of scripture is the antidote to powerless piety. It says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So here we have one of the solas of the Reformation, 
Scripture alone. We have the sufficiency of Scripture equipped for every good work. We have the answer to false religions that forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, creating some sort of a rigorous ascetic lifestyle. We might think, who would sign up for that? They are today. It's really popular amongst the emergents, what they call the simple lifestyle. Get rid of everything you have and go out into solitude and silence or something of that matter. They want to feel like they're more pious. They don't want, they want to avoid being ordinary. The same thing happened with the Desert Fathers when Christianity was tolerated by Constantine. Some people thought that the cities would corrupt the Christians, so they went out into the wilderness and became these desert monks in their solitude and silence. So that is a really long history of this. But the real answer is Scripture taught according to the author's meaning and applied to our lives so that we could be corrected, so that we repent of our sins, and that we could be trained in righteousness about how God wants us to live. We're not left in the dark. We're not left without moral guidance. We have it, and it's found in Scripture. And the good thing about the power of the cross is that our sins are canceled out, and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live lives that are pleasing to God. Gordon Fee says this, quote, for teaching, this is Timothy's primary, primary responsibility, to use the scriptures to give sound instruction in the gospel to God's people. Yes! Thank you, Dr. Fee. That's the primary responsibility. Oh, the sad development when in seminary, the psychotherapy takes prominence and the ability to actually interpret and understand scripture goes out the window. The students are not trained in righteousness. Bring the mic over to Eric. And so this training in righteousness cannot happen if we don't believe in the authority of Scripture and the meaning of Scripture. Eric. Amen, Bob. You know, you and I have talked about this passage on the radio, and one of the implications where it says it's inspired by God, it's breathed out. So God is the ultimate author of Scripture. And so the primary role of the pastor then, if he's going to do the flock any good, is to get the flock to understand the meaning of the inspired author. Now, think about an evangelicalism. What's the primary role in evangelicalism of a pastor? Well, somebody who's smooth, somebody who talks well, an entertainer. Now, are they getting people into contact with what the uh, authorial intent is of Scripture? Not necessarily. So we're rewarding good, smooth talkers, but we're not rewarding good exegesis. And it gets back to the passage you had mentioned, Bob, in 1 Corinthians 2.4. Paul said, my speech and message... We're not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit. Now, who inspired the Scripture? The Spirit did. Amen. So if people are going to be transformed by the Word, they have to understand what the author intended to say. And so what we have to start rewarding is exegesis rather than smooth talkers. Yeah, That's what's value? Problems. Another way of Amen. saying that. Thank you, yeah. Eric. And when he got to seminary, it was worse than it was when I was there. What is rewarded? What is valued? What is it on somebody's resume is going to get them a good job in, in the church? Is it exegetical excellence or is it people management skills and rhetorical flair? Telling a good story, getting people interested. I saw a little video of a sermon of a megachurch. This was some years ago when my book was, go, was, was first out and I was interacting with readers. There was this guy who was going to preach a sermon. Great big, huge stage in a huge auditorium. And at the beginning of the sermon, it's all dark. And then a spotlight goes on and it goes on to a toilet. And then you got to figure out what it's about. Yes. Good morning, Bob. Yeah, I'm trying to reconcile 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, where it says who Paul wrote, who forbid marriage. But then in 2 Corinthians, 
6.14, do not be unequally yoked. That seems like he's forbidding marriage okay. in a certain circumstance. Yeah, saying so, that they forbid marriage means absolutely no marriage at all. Okay. It doesn't mean that we don't have rules about what's a valid marriage. Okay. So okay. Just want to it would that. be like the Catholic priest taking an oath of celibacy. Okay. And, and Paul also writes in, in Timothy, uh, he would not want to, or in Romans, he wouldn't want to cause his brother to stumble by eating meat offered to idols. Yeah, so that he, would he's be forbidding himself 14. to eat. He's forbidding himself to eat. So in certain circumstances, in the same sense as the marriage thing, he's not forbidding eating at all. Nor not eating. Or yeah. not eating. Yeah. Those are things we have to work out in the, in the congregation. Yeah. And Romans 14 tells us that. But these false teachers are going to ultimately totally forbid marriage. And then they're probably wanting to keep the Jewish food law. Or, or say you have to fast for five days. Or yeah, exactly. They're going to try to gain spirituality by adjusting their diet. Adjusting your diet can do a lot of good, but it won't make you that spiritual. <laughs> All right. Good point. Yeah, forbidding doesn't mean there aren't issues like being unequally yoked, but it means they just see uh, probably what you have there is over realized eschatology, and there's no marriage in heaven. Can you explain what over realized It means we're going to live now as if we're already in heaven, and there's no marriage in heaven, so we're not going to have any now. That's what probably was going on. Remember, uh, some of the false teachers like Philetus were saying the resurrection's already happened. And Jesus had talked about that and said there won't be marriage after the resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians, they're saying there is no resurrection. In other places, they're saying it's already happened. So that's probably why they came up with this idea that marriage is wrong. Now in Rome, the teaching was uh, doing works of super irrigation. You hadn't heard of that? <laughs> Good guess. <laughs> yeah, you call a place to put sprinklers in your yard. <laughs> now, what it meant was works above and beyond what's required even by Christ. So they claim to have even better spirituality than Christ. Uh, Mr. Palmer. There was also money behind forbidding a marriage because if you weren't married, you couldn't have a legitimate heir. Therefore, there was nobody to inherit your property. Yeah. So then it reverted back to the church. That was an issue. By the way, I don't know what, what it looks like now because this is about eight years ago. I had a series of CDs from John MacArthur about Roman Catholicism. I think there were eight of them. Excellent. <laughs> Absolutely excellent. And he talked about that. See, by forbidding marriage, then they said they were, they thought they were solving a problem because, well, now we can't have nepotism. You can't give the papacy to your son. But also then there was no, the, the prelate or even the local priest never has anybody to pass their, their wealth down. And sometimes they became very wealthy and the church got it. Yeah, that's a good point. And I don't even know how to get this, but maybe it's a good Google search to find it. I can't tell you how helpful John MacArthur's material was to me on this. I listened to those CDs two or three times as I drove around in my truck. And it gives you some compassion these, uh, in, in a way. These Roman Catholic priests are really being abused by the church. Now they signed up for it. I don't feel too sorry for them. But they don't have much going for them. And MacArthur talks about that. You just got to hear him talk about that. Now, see, what we want to do, my dear brothers and sisters, is literally practice the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. We want to look at these things. We want to understand these things. We want to use the tools that God's given us and to know what God said. And I believe there's nothing more powerful than what God has said. Do you believe that? The truth is way more powerful than all these other substitutes. 
Now, I was going to talk, uh, quote another guy, Dr. Lee, again. I have his commentary on uh, the Timothy uh, books. He says this, the idea the term presents is that God has breathed his character into Scripture so that it is inherently inspired. Paul was not asserting that the Scriptures are inspiring and that they breathe information about God into us, even though the statement is true. The scriptures owe their origin and distinctiveness to God himself. This is the abiding character of scripture. Okay, please think with me here. What's true piety compared to pietism? When I was 16 years old and I went to camp... And I went to the Bible class taught by an ordained minister in this particular denomination. I went to ask the pastor about the scripture. And he says, you don't believe the Bible, do you? And I said, well, I thought I was supposed to. See, I had feelings of guilt. I'm supposed to be a Christian. I'm supposed to believe the Bible. I, I doubt it. I don't know if it's true. I've been hearing evolution in high school. And I, and I wasn't going to church because I was offended that I had to say I believed certain things that I knew the pastor didn't believe. And now they don't believe the Bible. I said, well, then what is the Bible? He said it is inspiring stories to help us live better lives. Now, at 16, I was capable of contemplating these ideas. And I thought, if the Bible's actually false, how exactly does that inspire me? And if these stories aren't true, do I get excited to be a better person? I thought to myself, and then I, I, I was careful about what I said because I didn't want to shame my parents. I thought, if, I'm, if my goal is to be a better person, I can do that by going to college, pursuing engineering, and do the world some good. I don't need to read a mythological book that can't be believed to be a better person. And I exited that particular church, and I didn't go back to church other than Christmas and Easter for, for family's sake until I was converted about five years later, four or five years later. Then I got a Bible, and I thought, this is true. It would have been so much better if that pastor said, the Bible's true, and you're a sinner. You need to repent. Oh, no, don't feel guilty. The Bible's not true, so don't feel bad about not believing it. It says profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction. Correction means literally setting straight. Adequate means fit or completely qualified. So it's, it'll make us fit for righteousness. Furnished, outfitted. Well, one of the terms here means outfitted uh, you, we probably know that one anybody been to the boundary waters what, when you see a big business up by the boundary waters just before you get into the boundary waters they call themselves outfitters right somebody may be listening to this in Arizona and they wouldn't get it but what is an outfitter they give you the equipment that you need for the task at hand which is going into the boundary waters and they want you to get out without dying. So you need to know how to light a fire and to get a compass and to get canoes and a Duluth pack so you can carry a lot of stuff in there and cook your food and so on. So that's what the outfitter does. Here that same concept is found in this passage to Timothy 3.16 that you might be outfitted, equipped, fit, given what you need in fit shape or condition is what that word means in fit shape or condition now when I was 25 years old I was in fit shape and condition to carry that canoe with a Duluth pack on my back over to Portage I'm telling you right now I wouldn't even attempt that but so there's the role of the young man and the role of the rest of us. And this here is talking about scripture. My dear friends, 
Nothing is more important than that our pastors and elders become fit to be able to train, to correct, to reprove, and to teach the word of God. And to do so forthrightly and without apology. There may be things inadequate. I may cough and wheeze or pause longer between phrases than I used to. But I make sure, may God help me, and I'm sure Eric is the same way because we talked this over. I do not attempt to teach a passage if I haven't done the study myself first. And sometimes there's issues that have been difficult to resolve, and I'll tell you what they are. I won't just throw it out there to confuse you. I want you to know the scripture. I do want us to practice the authority of scripture in the priesthood of every believer. Lee says this, the use of the Greek perfect tense for equipped suggests that this is an abiding condition. If Timothy would nurture his spiritual life in the scriptures that he would use in his ministry, he would be fully qualified and prepared to undertake whatever task God put before him. What a tragedy for any Christian to be labeled as spiritually unprepared for a task, says Lee, when the means of instruction and preparation are readily at hand. What's the excuse? Why do people go to, I was telling you about this video somebody sent me, black stage, spotlight comes on, here's a toilet. And so you sit and meditate on the toilet, and then the pastor comes out, and I can't remember exactly what he says, something about, is your life in the toilet? Whatever, something like that, it's just, a prop for being inspired to try to be a better person or whatever. We don't need this kind of vile material. We have the scriptures to teach. So what's the difference between pietism and piety? Piety is the result of faith in God, instruction in the scriptures, sound doctrine, the work of the cross, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Pietism is this claim of higher order Christianity to be found by those who know the secret, whether they be a cult or they be the monasteries or they be emergent. Literally, emergent isn't claiming that they just want to live wickedly. They're claiming to want to be authentic Christians who love the poor. A lot of them willingly to go live in a ghetto to show that they're committed. But they're sadly deceived because they don't have the power thereof. Something's wrong here, but that's okay. We're out of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scripture and the power of God. May we live in a way that would bring honor and glory to you, obeying you, listening to you, and doing your will, and encouraging one another in the same. In Jesus' name, amen.